0: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Byron Bowers.
1: And I was like, hey, is your balls tingling? And he was like, what? But I thought he meant like, what? He couldn't hear me.
0: That and more. But before that, I just want to give a little happy birthday shout out to Josie. From Nicholas Frank. Happy birthday, Josie. And you know what? I also want to point out, we are so thrilled to hear that so many Risk fans are telling us that they're getting the Risk book now as gifts to give to friends and family. Some are getting it for early Christmas shopping, even. And we're just so excited about that. People love the book. And really want to share it with others. If you haven't gotten a copy of your own yet, what are you waiting for? It's 37 stories. Six of them have never been heard on the podcast before. Many of them are completely transformed from the way they originally appeared on the podcast. And so many listeners are writing in that reading the stories on the page, there's so much new dynamism. There's noticing so many different things about the stories. It's affecting them in different ways. Plus, there's all the Q&A with the storytellers. There's so many famous people, wonderfully talented people in the book, like Michael Ian Black and Mark Maron and Aisha Tyler and Jonah Ray and Lily Taylor and Paul F. Tompkins and A.J. Jacobs and Dan Savage. You know, another thing that's been really, really kind of fun Fun and fascinating to see is how many people have shared the book with like family members and started to have conversations about difficult subject matter sex, drugs, life and death, spirituality because the book kind of gives an opening for talking about some of this hard but crucial stuff. In our lives. So definitely go get yourself a copy, get your friends and family a copy. Don't forget to review the book on Amazon, and it's at theriskbook.com or wherever books are sold. Also, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Have you been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or adult movie? Here is an offer you will not be able to resist. You just go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time only, you'll get 50% off just about any item. And we're talking about thousands of items. Our fans have always told us that this deal rocks. We we seriously get emails on a regular basis saying, holy cow, I can't believe what a good deal that is. That's not all. When you select one item at 50% off, You'll receive a free sex swing. You're gonna hang this swing to your door, and then you're gonna hang on tight. And to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on the entire order. So go check out adamandeve.com today for the special offer, 50% off one item. When you type in RISK for the offer code at the checkout, when you do, you'll get that free sex swing and free shipping. The offer code is R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Hank Mobley behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Rattled. I'm so excited because we have a radio-style story on this week's episode. We have been spread so goddamn thin with all the touring that we've been doing that we've been having a hard time finishing some radio-style stories recently, but we've got a great one today from the fabulous Susan Kent. But before that, we're going to hear something from the hilarious Byron Bowers. Uh, Byron has been phenomenal every goddamn time he's been on the show. This is from a recent story that he told at the Risk live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles, where the show appears once a month. You can find Byron at Byron Bowers on Twitter, and here he is now with a story we call Trippy.
1: Man, I was on tour for Adult Swim in 2012 and you know, I'm not much of a drinker. You tell I got ginger beer. I'm such a lightweight because I got addicts in my family. So, we was going through Texas. We already went through Seattle and Portland. You know, those are party places. And then we going through Texas. And uh, the guy I on tour with, he was like, hey man, I got these two pills uh, that we can't take through Texas. You want to take one? And like, we into the tour now. We like five, six shows in, I'm feeling good. I'm like, fuck it. What is it? And he was like, it's 2CI. And I was like, I don't give a fuck, you know what I mean? I'm like, what is 2CI? He was like, it's like LSD and acid and uh, ecstasy all in one pill. And I didn't know what either of those things were, so. I said, fuck it, you know what I mean? So I take a pill, we both take a pill, we cheers, we in this hotel room. I'm sitting down, you know what I mean? And we meditate, we would meditate every evening. So you got two black dudes, took a pill, we in the hotel room, we meditating on some arm shit. You know what I mean? It ain't like what you would hear in the Tibetan monk shit, you know what I mean? It's two niggas harmonizing right now <laughs> on some beautiful shit, it's like um um, um. You know, We feeling these vibrations, you know what I mean? Chakras is doing what the fuck chakras do. And I'm sitting there and my phone ring after the meditation. My phone ring, my manager called. Started telling me all these ideas and shit she got planned. I can't process none of this shit. I'm just sitting there like, yep, that sounds good. <laughs> yep, but I'm feeling like joy. You know what I mean, joy I normally don't feel. So everything she's saying is just making me hype. Like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan, but I can't tell her how to like really finagle the shit, you know what I mean? I'm not aware of what's going on. I get off the phone. He was like, yo, they call us to come downstairs. I was like, all right, let me drop my headphones off in the room. You know how a hotel room is like a door to the hallway. It's a bathroom, and then it's the room. I walk past the bathroom, and he's in there. He's like brushing his teeth or whatever, and he turns, and then another part of him turns. <laughs> and I'm, I do the dog thing. I cuck my head like this, and he was like, what? Mind you, like, my dad is paranoid schizophrenia. Oh. So, you know that it's a chance that you could develop these things, right? So the first thing popped in my head when I see two of him turn around, I was like, oh, shit. And he was like, what? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> you know <what> I, mean? <laughs> I was like, I'll be back, I'm coming back down. And I come back downstairs, and uh, I remember looking at the elevator when the doors close. You know how some elevators got mirrors? I remember when this door closed, I saw myself, like a version of myself. I had on like this olive green coat. I had on an olive green hat, bucket hat, you know what I mean? Five panel hat. I had a scarf on, multicolors, but the green in it matched the olive green in the hat. You know what I mean? Basically, I'm fly as fuck, right? <laughs> so. When the doors closed and I saw like myself, I was just like, I'm finna to fuck the shit out of you. <laughs> and then I jump back like, oh shit. What the fuck? What the fuck was that about? You know what I mean? That shit's crazy, you know. Mind I'm still not aware of what's going on. So I'm walking, like I walk it out of, the uh, elevator, and I walk down the hall, and as I'm walking down the hall, the hall is expanding. Every step I take, the hall is just getting further and further, like on some Nightmare on M Street type shit. And I go knock on the door like, yo, what's up? Let me in, yo, I got ready to go downstairs, like 10 doors down, the door open, and my homeboy sticks his head out like, yo, what the fuck you doing? (laughs) And I was like, oh shit, I thought you was down here. I think this hall just expanded 10 rooms. You know what I mean? So he's like, hurry up. Let's go downstairs. We go downstairs. Everybody's in the van. It's 11 of us. Cargo van. We on tour. We about to go to a restaurant. Somebody made reservations for us at this restaurant. It's like 7 o'clock. This dude told me this shit been the last seven hours. I don't know where we at in the time. All I know is he got in the van, and I got on the bumper of the van. And I was like, turn the wipers on. And I just started doing this shit. Hey, Ho! And everybody was like, what the fuck? And somebody came out, grabbed me, put me in the van. (laughs) We in El Paso, Texas, first off. Tell how this day started. Because I'm skipping something. I remember earlier that day, I was sitting in a jacuzzi, thinking life was good. I'm on tour, I've started comedy, it seems to be working out at the moment. Matter of fact, let me take my shorts off, and get in the pool. So I'm skinny dipping, in a hotel in El Paso during the day. You know what I mean? Like, one o'clock during the day. <laughs> working out, you know what I mean? I called my grandmother, working out, she she telling me about my dad and shit, you know what I mean? He's paranoid, schizophrenic, but he's been off drugs now probably for like eight years. And I was like, "Word, well, drugs are crazy, you know what I mean? <laughs> and she was like, I'm so proud of you for doing what you're doing. And I'm like, yeah, grandma, you know what I mean? I'm out here trying to do something, you know? That's happening before this whole night happened. So... I get in this van, right, and I'm sitting next to this dude who's one of the production guys on the tour. He don't get the hotel rooms, he got to stay on the tour bus, you know what I mean? So he's a little funky, right? <laughs> and I don't know what happened, but the smell, but it shit just kicks in on a whole nother level to where I'm offended, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like both his armpits just walked up to me and called me a nigga, and I'm like, what? You <laughs> like, what the fuck you say? And I just started going in on how bad his armpits smelled. Real fucked up shit too, what I'm saying. I'm like, your armpits smell like when Hitler gave a tour and he just did this with that same green jacket on the whole time. And all the hate just accumulated under his armpits. And then he got home at the end of the night, he was like, oh shit. I should kill myself, you know. That's what your armpits smell like. Your armpits smell like Jesus' last breath when he was on the cross for all that time. He ate the Last Supper and it digested in him. And then when he took his last burp from the Last Supper, that's what the fuck your armpits smell So I'm just talking cash shit for 11 minutes. But I'm feeling good. Like every time I say something, I'm like, woo, you know. Yeah, you know, that's a good one, you know what I mean? I'm high-fiving myself. We get in this restaurant now, we walk in a restaurant, imagine you walk in a restaurant and it's like you walk in back in time. You're in El Paso, Texas. I mean, it's cowboy boots, it's big ass belt buckles, it's fucking cowboy hats, it's like western shirts with the fucking fringe on it. They let you know, they put effort, this is going out for them, you know what I mean? And then eleven motherfuckers from LA, like hipsters and shit, just walk in the building. Like, yo, what's up? We in here? You know what I mean? And there's families in there, and I hear like a family laugh. It's like ha 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 uh. And I'm like, oh shit! You know, still not aware of this thing kicking in yet. Until I saw the devil. I saw the devil, right? And I grabbed my homeboy. Like, oh shit! They go Satan. He was like, what? I'm like, that to Satan. This dude had on a black shirt, all black. He was pale, he had a ponytail. He had like long fingernails. And he was there about to eat. He was having him a nice, calm meal as Satan would, you know what I mean? And I was like, yo, this restaurant has to be good if Satan eaten here. Cause he could've went anywhere in the world, but he chose to come here, you know what I mean? So we sit at the table, we sit down at the table. And the waitresses come up, you know what I mean? I think they Latin, I can't really tell, but all I know is uh, all of them look gorgeous. I mean, they look fine, they're a motherfucker. And like, you can see like the glow in their skin, you know what I mean? It's like they pores open and they pores just secreted just enough oil to make they shit smooth, you know? <laughs> and I'm just staring at all the waitresses while they trying to give orders. Uh, I'm just looking at them, and then I feel like a tingling sensation like in my ball region, you know what I mean? And I look over at my homeboy, he the only one that took a pill, and I was like, hey, is your balls tingling? And he was like, what? But I thought he meant like, what? He couldn't hear me. He meant like, like, what the fuck you say? So I was like, I said, is your balls tingling? We on this big ass table. He was like, oh, nah, nah, what the fuck? So I think, man, my balls tingling, man. And I'm starting to like feel like turned on, you know what I mean? But like turned on like in a good way. Like when you almost about to calm way. Like it's built up and you like, oh shit. And then the waitress come by and I'm like, excuse me. And my homeboy was like, no, 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 no. He stepped up, he's like, no, 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 no. I was like, I don't know who did your makeup, but that is the most beautiful ass job I ever seen before in my life. And she was like, "Thank you, Thank you." My mom was like, "Oh shit, oh, okay." <laughs> okay, uh, So I'm still dealing with this feeling, right? I'm getting turned on. like as this thing coming, I don't know what the fuck happened. I close my eyes and I start seeing like these old-school pipe scream savers and shit. <laughs> from windows, and I will open my eyes again, and everything looked vivid and normal when I open my eyes, when I close my eyes, these 3D pipes. And it was quiet, but it just looked just like the old windows shit, moving fast. And I was like, damn, this shit's dope as fuck. I'm like, this shit must be kicking in. My homeboy leaves to get up from the table. get like, ah, ah, he just yells. He gets up, he runs the fuck out of the restaurant, right? So he places his order, though, before he do that. I placed my order, I knew I wanted a steak, and I wanted some mashed potatoes, and I wanted something else. I asked them if they had mashed potatoes, and uh, they was like, we don't have mashed potatoes, we got baked potatoes. And when she said that, a feeling of disappointment came over me, and I had a flashback to when I was in the projects, and my I found out my dad smoked crack, and he left me in the middle of the projects, right? The same projects my cousin died in. And I just start crying at the table. Like boo-hoo crying. And she was like, What's, we, she's like we, got, we got baked potato. We got baked potato, I can bring you some butter and you can whip it up. And I was like, bring me some butter. Bring me a bunch of butter. And I'm like boo-hoo crying, I'm not like tearing up. I'm like losing it, right? So she goes back, right, she leaves. I'm sitting there, and I wipe my eyes. I'm like, I don't know what the fuck happened. This shit is crazy. And all of a sudden, like, I just started, like, coming on myself. (laughs) Like, I'm talking about, I'm having a feeling, like, no liquid or nothing, but it's like a wet dream. We all had wet dreams before, but I'm, like, wide awake, so I don't know what the fuck going on. So I'm trying to lightweight feel for liquid by, like, shifting in my chair and shit. Just trying to feel that icky wet spot, but it ain't there. But I'm, like, I'm drained. You know how you come, you just drain? You know, ladies, how when fellas come, they ain't got no more energy left, and they like, shit. And I'm looking down and all of a sudden a big-ass basket of butter just hit the table. And I was like, thank you. And I was like, man, I think I just came on myself. And everybody was like, what the fuck? And I was like, yeah, man, I just did, man. That shit is crazy. And I looked and another beautiful chick walked by and the shit just started happening all over again. I was like, oh, shit. I started getting a sensation as if I was getting head under the table. So I'm there, I'm just moving, like... At like one point I grabbed the guy's shoulder next to me. He was mad, he was tense, because he's so, we don't know what the fuck is going on and why I'm acting like this, you know what I mean? And I'm like, man, I'm so sorry. He's just tight, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, you can't feel what I'm feeling right now. I feel like I'm getting my dick sucked under the table. Oh shit, I'm coming. Oh. ugh. ugh Ah, because I'm a quiet comer, you know what I mean? You know how that is? How somebody make noise before they come? Like, oh shit, oh shit, that shit about to go. And I was talking to it, whatever it was. Meanwhile, I'm live tweeting all this shit because I never felt this before. I wanted to take my few Twitter followers on this experience, not knowing that it's reaching corporate Fuck that I'm on a tour with a television network and everybody's watching, and I'm just picking up followers. My phone's just going off, god, god. But I cannot read what the fuck's going on because when I look at my phone, the letters are just floating (laughs) off the phone, you know what I mean? And I'm trying to catch it and like push it down on the phone. (laughs) So I'm misspelling shit. You can go back and look at this shit. This is November, like 2014 or some shit. And, um, all I know I was talking to a ghost that was sucking my dick. <laughs> cause sometimes I like to talk shit. So I'm like, yeah, baby, like that. And I'm at the table and I would come and then I would not, like after come, I'm so tired, I just wanna eat. So I would grab my steak with my hand. <laughs> and just cause I didn't have long, cause I just kept coming, you know, it just kept coming. So I would just eat a little bit just to get enough strength for the next wave. Fast forward, like, we three, four hours in. We leaving leave in the restaurant. And I wanted to apologize to the waiting staff for coming on myself. But not trying to tell them I'm about to come on myself. But when I was looking to the most beautiful eyes I ever seen in that moment, it just brought back the lust feeling. And I just started to come again to where two dudes grabbed me and drove me out of the, you know, restaurant. They just drove me out. And it just started to sprinkle and the rain would hit me and it felt beautiful, you know what I mean? Just had a war splash on me. I'm coming down now, but all I know is they put me in the back of a tour bus. Uh, we were supposed to go to the strip club, which I was very excited about. But somehow that shit ended, shit got fucked up. And I don't know what the fuck happened, all I know was me and this guy on the tour bus, and he was like, I'll be back. And I realized like then, like, oh shit, they just locked me on the tour bus. <laughs> they nervous that I was about to do something, you know what I mean? And I understand because I wanted to just pull my dick out sometimes and just finish what the fuck <laughs> was going on. But uh, I was just sitting there with a styrofoam steak. And I had recorded my legs moving at one point because I felt my legs. I didn't know what the fuck going on, but I felt like I was getting my dick sucked. So I'm just on the bus just like legs going crazy like, ah, shit. Just talking, right? They get back on the bus. They was like, hey, man, we're walk to walk to this club. I was like, let me go. i go with you. I feel a little better now. And we walked to this club and I'm like, yo, where he at? The other guy. So apparently the other guy ran out of the restaurant. They had to take him back to his hotel room because he started throwing up. He tried to throw up the pill. And he was in his tub in his hotel threatening to cut his dick off and kill himself. So he was on watch, you know what I mean? (laughs) He had four people watching him. We get to this club and the music loud. You can feel every vibration as you pull up. You could just feel the energy of this club. You know what I mean? El Paso, Texas, with me and the women thick. You can see them as they go in, just ass everywhere. And I get up and then this violent, big ass military motherfucking security was like, I gotta search you. And I was like, I don't know if you wanna do that. <laughs> and he was like, You can't get in this club if I don't search you. I was like, but sir, you don't understand. You know what I mean? I'm going through something right now. And he's like, I gotta search you. And I was like, all right, go ahead. And then he pat me down, and he had like these big ass hands, and it just felt like, you know what I mean, somebody was just hitting you with a big ass board. And I'm sitting there trying to like, you know, whatever thought come through your mind when you try not to come, that's the thoughts I'm trying to, I'm thinking about my grandmother and shit. You know when you try to not come, and you think about some shit like your grandmother, is your mind, if you a pervert, always go to like that time you saw your grandmother titty and shit. So there's always a balance going on. It's like a fight, you know what I mean? <laughs> so if we get in this club. I find a corner to sit in until I come down off this thing. Because we on a tour, you know what I mean? So we got to leave. We got to leave and be in the next city in the morning. So by the time that, oh, and we get on the bus. All 11 of us. Everybody's asleep. It's been a long night. Only person up is the two people that took the pill. And the driver. The driver's driving the bus. The bus come to a stop. And he was like, what the fuck happened? And we still like a little bit high. And he was like, oh, Border Patrol. Border Patrol want to get on the bus. And we was like, oh, shit. The reason we took the pills was in Texas, they penalize you high for drugs. So we had to take them anyway just so we don't get pulled over. So my homeboy is in the bathroom. He tell me this. And I'm knocking on the bathroom door like, yo, come outside. And uh, he come outside. And he was like, what? I was like, Border Patrol here. He was like, oh, shit shit, and the back of the bus is like, the door is closed, so he goes for the door and tries like to open the knob, but it ain't a knob, it's a sliding door, so he just trying to push the door open as the fucking uh, border patrol get on the bus and was like, hey, and we both turned around like, uh, yes, officer, and we just looked guilty as fuck, and he was like, um, how y'all doing? He's like, we doing all right. Where y'all headed? We headed to Austin, Texas. I just point that way. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, y'all going to Austin? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I just came on to see if y'all had any illegals on here. And we was like, illegal illegal what? He just looked at us like real suspicious. And it got real tense. And he was like, aliens. And we was like, oh no, nah, we ain't got no illegal aliens on here. <laughs> and he's like, all right, all right, as you were. And then he got all the butts and we was like, shit. Thank God for the Mexicans, you know what I mean? (laughs) And then we made our way on to Austin, man. Finished the tour, it was a good tour. I've never felt no shit like that before. I got lucky, though, you know. Thank you. the rhythms boom take your hand and skip the names no need here for the silly games make our way through the smoking crowd the club is the sky and i'm on your cloud move in close as the lasers fly our bodies touch and the angels cry leave this place go back to yours our lips first touch outside your doors the whole night what we've got in store whisper in my ear that you want some more and i jizz, jizz in my pants this really never happens you can take my word i want to apologize that's just absurd mainly your fault for the way that you dance, and now i jizz, jizz in my my pants. Don't tell your friends or I'll say you're a slut Plus it's your fault you were rubbing my butt I'm very sensitive, some would say that's a plus Now I'll go home and change Yes, yes I is I in my pants. pants Yes I is in pants. my pants yes I yes I
2: It's 1976, I'm six years old, and I've just woken up in the back seat of my mom's old Monte Carlo. We're driving somewhere, it's the middle of the night, and I look up front and she's in the driver's seat and my baby sister's next to her. So I ask quietly, where are we going? And she looks in the rearview mirror excitedly and says, we're going to go live with grandma. This is how I found out that my parents are getting divorced and I'm moving to Fitzgerald, Georgia, this tiny town in the south part of Georgia. I'm bummed out because I'm coming from Jacksonville, Florida, which to me is a huge metropolis. I'm so cosmopolitan in my mind and I can't believe that I'm going to go live in this little redneck town. There's no... 7-Eleven for my Sunday Slurpee, and there's no mall for us to go buy books at, and all I remember from Grandma's house is that there's a park across the street, and that's about it. There's one Dairy Queen, there's about four traffic lights, and I can't believe I'm about to go live in this place. My first day there, Mom takes me over to her best friend's house because she wants to introduce me to some kids who are my age. We're sitting around the table and talking and having tea and cake like you do in South Georgia, and one of the kids is telling the story about school, and he uses the N-word. He's like, these kids, you know, these N-words, and I am shocked. I've never heard this word before. I look at his mother because I'm expecting her to flip out because instantly I know what he means. Of course, it's a terrible thing, and nothing happens. She just continues the conversation like it's just a regular old word and so I look at my mother and she just gives me this shrug like yeah that's just what happens here I'm incensed instantly I can't believe that I'm in this place where this is okay and I remember thinking I'm not like this why am I here these are not my people I want out I start first grade in Fitzgerald, and my first day, I see how segregated things are. The black kids sit in one side of the room. The white kids sit in the other. When I go out to recess my first day of school, I'm hanging out with a bunch of white kids, and they're asking me questions. Where are you from? Why don't you have an accent? Are you a Yankee? And I was like, yes, I am a Yankee. I didn't know what that meant, but I knew it was something they didn't like, and it was different, and so I went with it. And then they asked me if I was an Indian, and I was like, absolutely, Native American, full-blooded, I am not part of you. As we're talking, one of the kids says, well, at least you're not an N-word, and I was like, I can't. And so I walk away, and I see some black kids in the corner of the yard, so I go over to them, because... I'm going to be different and I'm going to make some black friends in this place where that's just not acceptable. And I walk up to the first girl and I was like, hey, I just, I wanted to tell you that I've always wanted to be black because I really want to be a good dancer Thank God. Like, I didn't realize how racist that was. They didn't either, because by the end of recess, I had learned several new dance moves. I had my hair in braids, and I went back into school feeling triumphant. I was so proud of breaking that boundary and becoming this person who, at six, seven years old, I'm just like, I'm different. I'm going to trailblaze in this place. And it felt great and I was triumphant and I went from there throughout my life and Fitzgerald just being different it wasn't accepted there. People didn't cross racial lines. People didn't make friends across those lines and by doing that I became known as the in-lover of town, which I was totally fine with. I wore it as a badge of honor. As I got older, I was in high school, and I had a group of friends, and one of them was this guy named Walt. Walt was the only black kid in our group, and he and I became very close friends. I thought he was fantastic, and every Friday we would get together at lunch and talk about what was happening on the weekend, so we'd plan which parties we were going to go to together, and it would be, you know, we're going to go out to the clay pit or to the rocks or to the orchard, because that's what you do in Georgia, and each weekend we'd be hanging out with all of our friends, and we'd be sitting around a fire or sitting on tailgates, and... I would always get close to Walt and flirt with him and hold his hand and hug him and kiss him in front of everybody because he and I loved to poke at these rednecks. We would sit around and you could see everybody kind of bristling that each time I'd touch him. I thought it was fantastic. I remember one night we were looking, or we were sitting around a bonfire and this one guy was talking and he said something about the inns in town. And Walt looked at me, he was like, I guess he forgot I was here. And it was the funniest moment of my life because it was so great to watch this guy struggle as he realized what he had just done. And I'm laughing with Walt and this was just kind of how our relationship was. We had great chemistry and we had so much fun together. One of the things about the two of us hanging out all the time was that he was so country, and I was so not. I got really into the hair metal scene in the late 80s, so I was always wearing a Skid Row t-shirt or Motley Crue, and I had the huge spiral perm hair and the wings and ripped up clothes and then Walt's next to me and his Wranglers and his Western wear and his boots and we were just such a perfect pair. The whole like opposites attract. It, we had such a good time. God, we did. We had such a good time. <laughs> if you were black, In Fitzgerald, Georgia, in 1986, you could not go to the movie theater, you could not go to the bowling alley, you could not go to Lake B, which was this skating rink slash swimming pool recreation center. And there were no hard rules about this, it was just numb. You could not go, and... Walt and I would talk about how fucked up the town was and how crazy this racism was and how we were such a great example of how you could have peace and harmony. And, you know, we were really aware of what our dynamic was. We would laugh about how we had flirted at a party and we would make jokes about the reactions from the red- Rendex. We would talk about, like, oh, my God, did you see that guy? (laughs) I thought his eyes were going to pop out of his head when he saw us holding hands. And it was really funny to me, but it never occurred to me that there was anything more. In my mind, you couldn't. You just couldn't. (laughs) You couldn't date a black person. Like, being friends with him was already pushing the envelope. It was just not a possibility. Pigs can't fly. White people can't date black people. Like, it just was not okay there. It never occurred to me that Walt saw our relationship as anything other than being friends who made jokes at parties about racism until I heard this dedication come across the airwaves. I was listening to a radio program that my friend Jen hosted on the local station. She worked out a deal so she could go in and do a dedication program where kids from everybody in high school listened every Friday night to hear all these dedications go out over the air. And one night there was one for me. This one goes out to Susan from Walt. Bobby Brown comes over the air and it's every little step and I go into full on panic because I haven't even considered that Walt and I could be anything more than what we've been and I also know that the entire school is listening when the lyric, no matter what your friends try to tell you, we were made to fall in love, goes out over the air. I call the radio station and Jen answers. What is going on, Jen? Why are you playing this song? And she's like, "He asked for it, Susan. What was I supposed to do?" I was like, "Call me. You should have called me because what if there's somebody's on their way to my house right now with a cross. You know they're about to burn a cross in my lawn." And she's like, "I know. I know. And I'm I didn't know what how to handle it and you need to know that I mean, obviously he has a crush on you, but also I think he's going to ask you to prom. And I said, which prom? Because in Fitzgerald, Georgia, there are two, uh, the black prom and the white prom. And I knew, even as I asked the question, that obviously it was the black prom because I wasn't allowed to bring a black person into the white prom. Uh, It was always held at the Elks Lodge where there were no blacks allowed, no Jews allowed. The way prom would happen each year in Fitzgerald most of us would have our photos taken and then we'd dance the first couple of dances and then we'd all pile into the trucks and head over to the monitor center where the black prom was held and we would spend the rest of the night dancing with our friends there. So I knew that in his mind I was going to go to the black prom with him and I couldn't fathom the idea of him being my date, of me walking into that black prom as the first interracial couple in Fitzgerald, Georgia history. And I couldn't imagine missing out on the beginning of the white prom with the photos and the dances, because that was part of my experience, too. I didn't know how to handle it, and I was terrified of facing him, and so I didn't. The next week at school I stopped showing up at lunch where Walt and I would usually hang out, and I avoided the halls where I knew he had his classes during the day. I basically just ghosted him because I didn't know how to tell him all of these things. I'm 17 years old, I'm living in this crazy place, and I've already established myself as this rebellious, different person. I was really into it, but now it's gone too far. And I'm terrified. I love this guy so much. He's one of my favorite people, and he's my best friend. And I can't, I can't face him. I can't tell him no if he actually does ask. And so I just avoid him until it's too late for him to ask me to prom. And that year, I went to white prom with some white date. I don't even remember. I felt so guilty. I wanted to go to prom, but I felt terrible because I knew that Walt was out there and he was probably sad and confused. And I made my way to the dance and I'm there and I take the pictures and then I'm dancing the first dances and as I'm walking by the door, there's these two huge French doors at the entrance to the Elks Lodge. And as I pass, I look in the parking lot and I see Walt He's parked his truck, and he's walking up front towards the door, and I freeze, because what the fuck are you doing, Walt? What are you doing? I watch chaperones go out to meet him in the parking lot, and they have a conversation that is civil, but you can see there's some stress happening, and... As he's talking to the chaperones, he makes a gesture towards the Elks Lodge and he looks at the French doors and he sees me. And we make eye contact and we stare at each other for what feels like 20 minutes, 20 years. So much is being said with just looking at each other and I want to scream, get out and run because what are they going to do to you? What if they hit you? What if they do something worse? What are you doing? Like, this is too much. Well, why why do you think this is okay for you to just come in like this? And then I'm hating myself because I'm thinking, get out. I also want to tell him how much I love him and how sorry I am that we're even in this situation. So as soon as he turns back to the chaperones, I do what I'm great at, and I just run. I hide in the dance, and that year I don't go over to the Monitor Center with everybody else. I went home early because the idea of running into Walt and having to discuss this was just, it was too much, and 30 years passed, 30 years passed, and I didn't talk to him or get to explain, and I carried it with me for all that time. I always had this story and this experience in my heart as I left Fitzgerald, as I moved to New York, and then as I became a storyteller, I started sharing the story on stage. And as I would tell it, I was always using his real name, and then Facebook shows up, and now things are getting out, and I was scared that somehow he might hear the story. Mm-hmm. for our 30th high school reunion I was hoping to run into him and he didn't show up at the party so I reached out I found him on Facebook sent him a message and asked if he would meet me for a drink he responded instantly and was like absolutely I would love to see you and a couple of days later we met up at a Ruby Tuesdays and we had a Bud Light together and we spent a long time just catching up and going over what our lives have been like these last 30 years and eventually I got to a point where I was ready and I said well you know there's a reason I wanted to talk to you specifically and I explained what had been going on and how I've been telling this story and how I wanted to clarify some stuff and as I bring it up I see the recognition on his face and something that looks like disappointment. I'm checking through the details. This is what I remember. What do you remember? And he just kept responding with these one word. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's how it happened. But he's not offering me anything else. And I realized that maybe in this 30 years of guilt and shame that I have now crossed over into being the person that's creating the problem who do I think I am coming in and disrupting his life and asking him about all these painful memories and does he think that now I'm the racist cracker who's in his face? So I try to wrap up the conversation really quickly after I explain, like, I've been putting this out on the radio and it's it's coming. (laughs) And so I just wanted to make sure that this was okay and I just want to know, you know, what were you thinking that night? when you came to the white prom. And he just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, you know, Susan, it just gotta be me. And that was all he offered me. And that's what I took. I didn't push it anymore. Later that night, a mutual friend of ours from our old circle was having a party at his house in town. And so I asked Walt to come meet me there. And he quickly agreed. And when we hugged goodbye, the afternoon I felt this spark with him that I had never felt before this electrical chemical like I actually I thought he was going to kiss me it felt like it felt natural to kiss him in that moment it was this weird experience that I had never felt with him before and so the rest of the afternoon I'm thinking about him and we get to the party and we're flipping through old pictures and telling stories and it's great it's so much fun to be back and have this experience with him again and as we're leaving that night he and I walk out to our cars together. He hugs me goodbye. He walks around the front of his truck to get into the cab and right before he gets in he looks up and he says, Susan, you should know that you are the love of my life. And then he jumps in his truck and closes the door and takes off before I have a chance to respond I'm, I'm blown away. I look back on our relationship and on these past 30 years and just like I have with all of my relationships and some of them were really significant and monumental and some were casual and when I unpack everything that I went through with Walt while I was living close to him and while I was apart from him, I realized that He's definitely one of the great loves of my life too.
0: is risk this is chastity brown behind me now and we just heard from susan kent that story was edited by our episode editor jeff Barr. jeff and myself and the whole risk staff have been talking about this new idea that we have and i think we're going to give it a shot this week the idea is that every thursday we will upload an extra episode now these episodes I think we might call them classic risk singles. And what it is, is it's just one story from our archives. You know, one story from the first, say, four years of our existence, now that we've been around for almost 10 years with almost no hosting or music or, or ads or anything like that. Just me at the very beginning, giving a very short little intro saying, Hey, here's an extra story by so-and-so that first occurred on the podcast in 2010. And then the story itself. To give everyone a little taste of, um, well, for newcomers, it's uh, one extra story every week without all the you know bells and whistles elsewise. And for people who have been listening for a long time, it's you know, these are reruns of stuff that's so far back in the past that uh, it, it might be a real new discovery of, oh holy cow, I don't know if I remember this one or not. So I think it should be kind of fun and interesting to try out. Now, you know, I've had a few nights back at home, finally. You know, there's a little bit of a break between our D.C. and Baltimore shows and our Pacific Northwest shows. So I have been loving (laughs) sleeping in my own bed. A quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions. It helps prevent burnout helps you make better decisions, improve your memory. You know, overall, you're making fewer mistakes. It's not marketing, it's science. To design a better mattress, Lisa, L-E-E-S-A, leveraged 30-plus years of experience and hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. That's more than 26,000 mattresses and counting. Lisa strives to leave the world better than they found it, but that doesn't stop with mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plans one tree for every mattress they sell and are committed to planting one million trees by 2025. I have absolutely loved my Lisa mattress, it is the perfect blend of softness and firmness that just absolutely allows me to go into la-la land and wake up feeling refreshed. So don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at l-e-e-s-a.com slash risk. That's lisa.com slash risk for $160 off. Lisa, a better place to sleep our final story on this week's episode comes again from the live show that we do once a month at the bootleg theater in los angeles beowulf jones is the host of the show out there and just does a fantastic job if you live anywhere near los angeles come out for one of our Shows that we do once a month there at the Bootleg. Now, this final story comes to us from Marlena Nichols. Marlena is a, a writer. Uh, she performs a good deal with a show out there in Los Angeles called Write Club, and here she is now with a story we call "Brother of Mine."
3: my first time on Risk. Yeah. God, you guys are a pretty audience too, wow. Okay. Shopping with my mother. You know, it's a lot like I was shopping with Carl Lagerfeld. If Lagerfeld were starring in a Tarantino movie. She yells at me across the store, Malina! Grab the Italian blouse, the kitten heels, the see-through clutch, and the rest, we leave to hell. (laughs) That's it. She shops via instinct, right? She's been known to call and say things to me like, Marlene, I think we have to go to New York because I have a feeling we find shoes. (laughs) And we do. No, we have gone shopping in, Paris, in Berlin, in Los Angeles, and then about two years ago, she calls me and she says, Malina, I have a feeling that we have to go to DC. Okay, I love a good pantsuit, but I have never thought of our nation's capital as like a fashionista paradise. No, well, Malina, actually, we're going to see your brother. Oh, yeah, no, (laughs) no. See, I haven't seen my brother in 10 years. Um, and it's not that anything happened, it's just that, you know, after a certain amount of time where you don't get calls back, or your texts returned, or you show up for Thanksgiving and you're accepted, but it was really unnecessary, um, you kind of start trying, you know? You remember that book, He's Just Not That Into You? (laughs) I read it, I get it. (laughs) But the thing was, it wasn't really always like that, right? So when I was a little kid, um, I was in love with my brother. When I was in kindergarten learning how to tie my shoes, my brother was graduating college with the degree in chemical engineering, and I remember, I remember blushing from pigtail to pigtail as my brother introduced me to his professors as the next genius in the family. And then when my brother went into the Navy, he became an officer, he would write letters home addressed to me because he knew how much I loved mail. But then my dad got sick, and he passed away, and my brother was on a missile destroyer in the Persian Gulf. So, I don't know, he just kind of never came home. Or I mean to say, like, he made another home. You know, he got married, he had kids, he was stationed around the world. And I think maybe we just don't have... Like we've just been separated so much by time and space that we don't have those shared memories to tether us. My mother's on the phone and she says, well, Marlene, he's invited us and I have to go. And if I have to go, you have to go. Because if you don't go, I can't go because I don't know how to buy a plane ticket anymore. (laughs) Now um, just for clarification, DC is the closest airport to where my brother and his family live. They actually live in Maryland off a two-lane highway where the strip mall is king, but we go and my mom and I are standing on his porch and let me tell you something, like we look good. (laughs) All of that nervous ironing back at the hotel totally paid off. (laughs) My brother answers the door and he says, as he hugs me, I'm sorry, it's been so long. And all that childhood love, it just kind of immediately comes back. And how can it not when I see my whole family tree dancing in his eyes? And then my sister-in-law comes in between us and, um, okay, so maybe it's not just time and space that's been keeping us apart all these years. My sister-in-law, she's a knitter, she knits. She's got a ball of wool kind of tucked up under her arm and she stabs me with one of her needles as we hug and she says, Marlena, it's been so long, how are you? Good to see you, can I make you an Afghan? Do you still like purple? How about a waffle motif? I could put you on my list, you'd be number eight on the list. Um, I'm very much in demand, but then eight becomes number one and then you'd have your afghan. What do you say? Shall I make you an afghan? (laughs) (laughs) Now I remember my my brother and my sister-in-law's house is being messy, but somebody has evolved in the intervening years, and I think a little bit more like a hoarder now, uh, but, you know, with a Costco card, right? So everything's just in bulk. And I stand there, and I kid you not, a feline army of 13 cats kind of emerges from the pallets of soda and paper towels, and I find myself sneezing and surrounded, and then there's this (laughs) one-eyed... There's a one-eyed tabby that kind of looks up to me as if to say, may the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) My mother is the one who pulls me back out onto the porch before I have an asthma attack. We're definitely a family divided. So um, we do what estranged families do, we brunch. Now the officer's club in Annapolis is gorgeous. It has floor-to-ceiling windows. My brother sits down. He's looking out over the Potomac like the retired sea captain with his faded Hawaiian shirt on. And the whole place is covered in, like, beautiful buffet. And my mom and I, we stack the table with, like, eyed salmon and omelets and cheesecake because my brother does look a little bit too thin. But he kind of waves us off, and the, the waitress pours him coffee. And as we're eating, he just sort of blurts out and says well, my body's been malfunctioning and I couldn't swallow pizza crust, so I went to the doctor. That was the only sign there was, but that's why I went, and so now... And he goes on to tell us that he has a stage four cancer. Now, I know what that means because my father had the same thing, a stage four cancer, and he looks at me as if he reads my mind as it's not what dad had. But he doesn't know because he wasn't there. No, I plan on being an outlier. My mom slowly covers her plate with her napkin and pushes everything to the side and my sister-in-law, still knitting. (laughs) You'll be number seven soon. um, Seven will go to one and then you'll have your Afghan. Are you sure I can't make you an Afghan? After brunch, We do the next thing that families do, um, which is drink. So my brother comes with me and he gets into the car and we drive those 30 miles down a two-lane highway to his favorite Maryland vineyard. I didn't know that they made wine in Maryland, but God bless (laughs) the fucking vineyards. (laughs) He then leans back in his seat and asks me if I mind if he eats lunch. And he unzips this kind of mini cooler that I'm not even sure where he got it from and he starts to create this kind of lab in his lap and he pours this pink concoction between two beakers he adds water and it starts to fizz a little bit and let me tell you the thing smells awful and he looks at me he's like I know it smells bad he says but if it smelled like McDonald's everybody would be doing it And he lifts his shirt and I see that there's this opening, a tube in his stomach where he pours in his lunch. Now I've streamlined my diet now, he tells me. Only water, wine, and Hagen Das pass these lips. In moments of great pressure, I crack jokes. That is my dream diet. Basically, that's the dream diet of every woman I know of in LA. How are you always ahead of me? He's like, well. Actually, I, even, I, have a, I have a physicist, too. A physicist? Wait, how do you have a physicist? What do you mean you have a physicist? Did you, like, like, in your closet have a physicist? Like, did you kidnap a physicist? No. It's just he does my radiation. He calculates how much they're going to zap me with. Is he cute? Because I can't date another actor. Well, I mean... I don't know, but physicists only talk to other physicists so there's gotta be one out there we can find for you. (laughs) And there's something in my chest that just kind of opens up and I figure I'm gonna go for it, I'm gonna try it again. And I tell him, I I've missed you. And then I wait for the response. So at the winery, Um, My brother joins his wife at the bar. She beat us there and she is still knitting and I see her lay this patterned square over his chest and I swear to God she would cocoon him in alpaca if she could, but I go find my mom who's been roaming around the gift shop and she is stuck in the the neckline of a t-shirt that reads, Jesus drank too. So I help her out of it and I see that her face is wet and she's like, I was trying to find a gift for him. I hand her a glass of wine, which she sort of waves away saying like, I refuse to waste calories on wine made in Maryland. (laughs) This shouldn't be happening, Marlena. I drive her and I back to our hotel that night and we start playing something we like to call vending machine bingo. And uh, that's where I funnel quarters into the vending machine while she calls out these random combos like she's in some French existentialist movie. <laughs> B5, F6, G2. I was supposed to go first, Marlena. I was supposed to die first. Then, but your father, he screwed that up. So it's supposed to be your fathers, and me's, and him's, and you, M6. I'm sorry, mom, there's no M6. Ah, there never is. (laughs) And we watch, we're eating as these high school students sort of come in in those hideously iridescent um, gowns that they wear, because there's a prom in our hotel. And I get this idea, and I was like, come on. And I grab my mother and the sleeve of powdered donuts, and I take her out to the car. Where are we going, Marlena? We're gonna go shopping, I say, as I pull out of the parking lot. And she looks at me with this sort of shocked look, and she kind of starts waving her arm at the window in the countryside. Where, Malina? where? So I quickly look on my GPS, and I find a Marshalls. We are going to Marshalls! And I'm telling you, 20 minutes later, we are in that men's department, and golf shirts and Calvin Klein's are flying. And my mother is like, oh my God, he's going to die surrounded by cats and Afghans. Maybe we should get him a robe. Do they have any robes? Why don't they have any robes, Malena? And then we turn and we see this display of medicine bags. They're beautiful. It's like cognac leather, it's blue interior, and they're gonna be perfect because this is something that he is gonna be able to use. And it's the hardest gift I've ever bought because this is gonna be something he's able to use. So to make it fun, we buy all the trappings, right? We buy ribbons and bows and that stupid confetti that you put into the bags. And we take it back to our hotel and he's just sitting there on the desk and it's like this towering thing of beauty. And then we just wait and we wait. And the next day he comes to our hotel and we have one hour alone with him. And my mom and I and my brother, we give him the gift and he looks at it opens it and he's surprised oh is this a this is medicine bag i i can use this and all of a sudden they're starting to talk right we kind of settle ourselves around the room and um My mom and he are chatting about his childhood, those Yugoslavian trips with my grandparents, um, how he ate tuna fish sandwiches for three years, how long it took him to blow into a flute. And I'm all gung-ho about this, except I I don't have those memories and I'm not there. So my sister-in-law comes knocking on the door way too soon and I go to hug my brother. And as I'm hugging him, he just sort of says, Miss you. Thank you very much.
2: We have fallen down again tonight. In this world, it's hard to get it right. Trying to make your heart feel like a
1: glove. What it needs is love, love, love. Everybody, everybody wants to love. Everybody, everybody wants to be loved. Oh oh, 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 oh. Everybody, everybody wants to love.
2: Everybody, everybody wants to be loved. Oh.
0: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Ingrid Michelson behind me now, and we just heard from Marlin and Nichols. Now, don't forget, you can always find out more about the storytellers and the musicians if you go to the listen pages at risk-show.com. There's even a search bar there where if you can remember keywords from stories or storytellers' names or stories' titles, you can you know, look through our entire catalog and find stuff on all the listen pages with all those tables of contents of all the episodes. Also, don't forget, we are very, 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 very much looking for pitches right now for scary stories for our Halloween episode and fun winter holiday sorts of stories for our episode that'll fall somewhere around December 25th. You can find all the information you need about pitching us on the submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a little video there explaining how to pitch us. There's a 56-minute a lecture pep talk that I give on what makes a risk story really work. And right now, especially scary stories and winter holiday stories, Pitch those to us at risk slash submissions. Now I'm going to read for you the places that Risk is coming next so you can come out and see us live. On September 6th, we are back in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. We've had so many great shows in Portland, so it'll be great to be back on September 6th. Come on out, Portland. On September 7th, we're back in Seattle at the Vera Project, another place where we've had astounding shows in the past. Come on out on September 7th, Seattle. On September 8th, we're in Vancouver at the Biltmore Cabaret. So come on out, Vancouver, Vancouver on September 8th. On September 15th, we're back in LA at the Bootleg Theater. And on September 20th, we're at the NYU Bookstore. That will be a book reading and book signing for the Risk Book at the NYU Bookstore on September 20th. On October 4th, we're in Denver. Now, the Denver show, we're still taking pitches for. So if you live anywhere near Denver and you wanna pitch us and see if you can become a part of that show, Please do. Or if you know someone in Denver who might have a great story, poke them, tell them to pitch us at ristashow.com slash submissions. And if you don't, just come on out and see the show on October 4th in Denver at the Bluebird Theater. Other than that, don't forget that we teach storytelling as well at the storystudio.org. We do one-on-one teaching over Skype. We also have in-person workshops, group workshops in New York, in Los Angeles, and in Minneapolis. And we have video classes that you can take in your own time. You can download the videos, download all the workbook material, That's all at thestorystudio.org. But beyond that, we even do corporate workshops for clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank. So many great corporate workshops that we do. Of course, those stories are not at all like risk stories. They're business stories. But the same storytelling principles apply There's just doing it in a different context for a different purpose. So come check out all that we have to offer at the folks today's the day take a risk
1: everybody, everybody.
0: Hey Kev, it's the voice in your head oh, what's up voice in my head well uh, I was just wondering are we still singing the names of people who have ordered the risk book we are now People who have ordered the risk book people who have ordered the wrist There's Mary Ann, wait. <laughs> And Sonia and Josh Greenbaum. <laughs> There's Corey Grower and Ari Shalizi. There's Jason Callaso castle a wonderful risk evangelist. And now that they've... Bought the risk book, they can review the risk book on Amazon.